what's legal or permissible is different than what's advisable for the community. And we're really concerned about houses of worship being co-opted by these politicians as well as losing their prophetic voice. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Experiencing Christ's love is just the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor at the 2019 CBF General Assembly, June 17 to 21 in Birmingham, Alabama. Join the Cooperative Baptist family as they worship, learn, and grow through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with booths, live podcasts, and music. For more information and to register, visit cbf.net slash assembly. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Amanda Tyler, the Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And what we're going to do in this episode is talk about several different issues that have been happening just in 2019 that are involved with religious liberty and church-state issues. And as you'll quickly see, there's a lot happening, and the Baptist Joint Committee is representing that historic Baptist understanding of religious liberty for all, and remaining highly engaged in a number of these important issues that we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, I sat down with Amanda back at the end of March. We were on the campus of William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri, for the first night of the BJC's Sheridan Lectures, which is the annual lecture series of the BJC that travels to different campuses across the country each year. The first night was held at William Jewell, and then the second night was at Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Shawnee, Kansas. The keynote speaker this year was Aid Sandwright Riggins, and if you missed it, he was in last week's episode, so I'd encourage you to go check that out in episode 69 to hear my conversation with him about some of the things he was talking about in the Sheridan Lectures, his involvement now as a local mayor, and how he sees important issues of race and religion and religious liberty. But I was happy to have Amanda back on the program because so much has been happening, and I hope that you find this episode to be very helpful and informative as you try to keep up on these important issues. So here's my interview with Amanda Tyler. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. I think that of our regular interview formats, you're our first return guest. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been five months since we last talked. And just a few things have happened. Just a few things as we're going to discuss here. And so we're not going to do any of the background questions about the BJC and, and your life. If anyone missed it, they can find that in episode 36. So instead, I want to talk about things that have been happening in the world of religious liberty since you and I last sat down and talked. But first, we are sitting here on the campus of William Jewell College, and tomorrow we'll be at Central Baptist Theological Seminary for the Sheridan Lectures. So what are the Sheridan Lectures? So this is an endowed lecture series, endowed by our dear friends and donors, Buddy and Kay Sheridan. This is the 14th annual Sheridan Lectures on Religious Liberty and Separation of Church and State. And thanks to this generous gift from the Sheridans, the Baptist Joint Committee goes to college 
campuses and universities and seminary campuses every year with a distinguished lecturer. That lecturer is given freedom to talk about his or her area of expertise. So this year, we are honored to have the Reverend Dr. Aitzan Wright Riggins III, who is presenting two lectures and particularly focusing on his life's work of freedom fighting in the areas of religion and race. So really excited for these lectures, and we'll be having these available on the BJC podcast at some point, too. So everyone can check out those lectures. So one of the issues that's popped up in several states this year has been the so-called Bible literacy bills. President Donald Trump tweeted his support for the legislation, but you offered a different tone. What are these bills and what are the church state concerns that you have about them? So we did see these Bible literacy bills popping up in states across the country, including here in Missouri, over the last several months. And we started getting some press calls about these, first from a reporter at the USA Today who had noticed a pattern here, and she was asking us at BJC, where, where is this coming from? We pointed to a project that goes by the name Project Blitz. This is an organized campaign led by the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, which actually has very little to do with Congress, but is put out you know, a nearly 200-page playbook with bills that they're encouraging state legislatures to consider. And this Bible literacy bill is one of the bills. This is curious to us because We don't need legislation to teach about the Bible in public schools. Notice the key word there is about. We can teach about the Bible. We can't teach the Bible. We can teach religion in an academic way. We can't teach about it in a devotional way. So we are very suspicious about these bills because we question the motives behind them, whether or not they're constitutional as written on paper is one thing how they're put into practice in the school districts is another one and one that requires a lot of special care. So we're concerned about these bills and anything that might send a signal to our public school children that in order to be a full American, they have to be Christian. We also, as Baptists, are concerned about public schools engaging in religious indoctrination of any kind. We know that that is best left to our religious communities, to our families, to the private sphere, and not to government. As we're talking, on March 26th, last night, Missouri's House did pass its Bible literacy bill. It still now will have to work its way through the Senate. So I think we'll have to continue to yeah. watch them. And we're grateful for your advocacy, Brian, and as you're watching for these bills on the state level. And, and that's something that at BJC we really rely on our state advocates to be watching for this and to be raising their voices as protectors of religious liberty about why these are not a good idea from a church, state, or a Christian perspective. In January, as we move through our mini list of things that have happened just this year, in January, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services granted a waiver to allow a South Carolina foster care service to still receive federal funding even while discriminating on the basis of religion. And I wonder if you could help us, what happened here and why are you concerned by this move? Yeah, so this is something that did make national news, but like so many things these days, it really was a blip and then, you know, the news cycle moved on. But I do think this is going to be a continuing issue. So the state of South Carolina sought a waiver from the Department of Health and Human Services 
for something called their Title IV-E Foster Care Program. So the state of South Carolina gets quite a bit of federal money to help run their foster care program. One of their largest providers of foster care services is a Christian organization by the name of Miracle Hill Ministries. This organization gets hundreds of thousands of dollars in federal and state money each year to help support their foster care operation, which they consider to be a ministry. They come at this from a faith-based perspective, and according to their tenants, they feel like they can only engage parents or mentors in their programs who are Protestants. So for us at the BJC, our concern stems from the fact that they are receiving government money for their services, that if you get government money, you usually have to apply you know, go by the government's rules and regulations here, which included not discriminating on the basis of religion. So this particular foster care agency, a Jewish woman applied to be a mentor in the program and she was turned away. So the state of South Carolina sought this waiver and so now is able to go ahead and turn away applicants who don't fit their religious test while still receiving government money. You know, we think that there is a role for faith-based providers to help deliver needed social services like this. But we think when federal money is involved, government money, that special care needs to be taken to ensure we, you know, abide by church-state safeguards, constitutional safeguards here. And we have concerns whenever we have religious discrimination done with government money. So other states have sought similar waivers, and and we expect others will, will follow suit. So this is a continuing issue that we will be watching closely. Well, thanks for putting that on our radar. We'll, we'll probably be seeing you file like a brief on this in the Supreme Court, I'm sure, at some future year as this continues to be litigated. In February, the state of Alabama executed a Muslim death row inmate while also denying him the opportunity to have his imam there with him, even though Christians had been allowed to have a Christian chaplain there with them. And this occurred because of a 5-4 vote by the United States Supreme Court that actually overturned an appellate court ruling. You've spoken out against that ruling in some pretty strong terms. What do we need to know about this case, and what's the problem with the high court's ruling here? And so first, I'm really glad you asked about this, Brian, because I think we just need to know about this case, period, full stop, because this came up to the Supreme Court on an emergency motion, which meant groups like BJC didn't have time to get involved. And I really fear that our fellow Americans will not know about this case because, again, with our busy news cycle, it didn't get the full briefing and consideration that most of our church state cases did. I vividly remember this case came out on February 7th. happens to be the day before my birthday. So I, I remember that date, and I remember when I, I read reports, I, I cried. I mean, this really hit me very personally that the Supreme Court was allowing a man to be executed executed without his religious advisor at his side just because he was Muslim. You know, if he had been a Christian, he would have had a Christian chaplain by his side. This seems to be one of the most basic rights and to have that disregarded at the moment of death and death carried out by the state really felt like we have crossed a bridge beyond a civilized society and certainly beyond a society that truly values religious freedom. So I very personally took this and did write a response about it. You know, I think like all these church state cases, the the details are very complicated. But what was most troubling of all, and Justice Elena Kagan wrote a dissent for the four justices who did not vote with the majority, 
that the execution should go on. She called it profoundly wrong. What was so profoundly wrong is that the Supreme Court really rushed this execution without at least considering all of the facts. And that's what the lower appellate court had said. You know, they they said, Supreme Court, please just stay this execution. Let us have time to build a record to really consider if there is a way to accommodate his religion here and also not establish religion, right? You know, the twin guarantees of religious freedom that we've talked about before, that to prefer Christians over other faiths here seem to strike at the most basic understanding of the Establishment Clause and when we needed to understand more. Unfortunately, five justices in the majority didn't even write an opinion. Several people have said, where can I find this majority opinion? There is no majority opinion. All it said was the prisoner waited too long to raise his claim and therefore would be executed that night. And he was without his spiritual advisor at his side. That's a case that can't be undone, unlike a lot of the cases. That, that That's right. Irreparable harm here. And, and a lot of people have asked, I think, rightly, what would the harm to the state have been? He wasn't asking, you know, he wasn't appealing his execution itself. It was just a matter of timing. What would have been the harm to the state to have waited just a little while longer? Well, well later in February, you did have a chance to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and you were there for all arguments in the case Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission v. American Humanist Association, and another case that was joined with that, but we'll just call it the Cross case. What's this case about, and what was the BJC's position in the front of the court brief that you all filed? Yeah, so listeners can find out all they want to know about this case at bjconline.org slash crosscase. We made that easier than that, (laughs) than that long name that the case goes by. So this case involves a challenge to a 40-foot cross that's on government land in the middle of a very busy intersection in a community called Bladensburg, Maryland, that's just a few miles outside of Washington, D.C. This cross has been standing in Bladensburg since 1925. It was originally erected by a private organization, the American Legion, in order to honor the local war dead. But sometime later, in the 1960s, the cross was transferred to government control. And sometime also, you know, after its construction, it was rededicated to stand for all war dead, not just the locals who had died in World War I. So it's been standing there for a long time. Several years ago, people represented by the American Humanist Association filed suit about this cross, and they alleged that it was a government establishment of religion. So this case worked its way up the courts, and it made its way to the Supreme Court. So like many cases, when they come to the Supreme Court, BJC gets involved. And we always, before we decide to file a friend of the court or amicus brief in these cases, we say, what is the BJC's unique contribution going to be here? Well, it did not take us long to figure that out because the briefs that were being filed on behalf of the government were making a pretty extreme claim. See, they weren't claiming that the government could go around erecting 40-foot religious monuments on government land. They, I think everyone knows that that would be plainly unconstitutional and very divisive. Instead, they're claiming that the cross is a secular symbol. And they're also claiming that it's just a generic objective symbol for all dead. So at this point, we really felt called to get involved, both as church-state law experts and also as religious people, people who know that the cross is a religious symbol. And in fact, it is the preeminent symbol of our faith. It's not generic. It is unique to Christianity. And so we filed a brief joined with a number of other religious groups, including Jewish groups, to make these points. 
And I think that it was an important brief and important argument to be had. So you're, you're making the claim that the cross is religious. That's right. I, I, it seemed, I mean, listeners might be astounded that, you know, all of these, you know, complicated legal terms and, and, and of course, our brief has legal arguments in it. But a lot of it is a theological argument that the cross is a religious symbol. So you were in the room for the oral arguments. I wonder if you could give us some, some thoughts about how you thought that went. And I want to note also, of course, that your brief was specifically cited by justices as well as by attorneys. That's right. So, so yes, we were there on the day of argument, standing outside starting around 7 a.m. on a very cold morning, waiting for a 10 a.m. argument to begin. It, you know, first off, just coming into the courtroom, it was a real David versus Goliath moment because the lawyers representing the government were, first of all, they had three different advocates arguing their side of the case because of the many parties that are involved that you cited in that long case name, including someone from the Solicitor General's Office of the United States. So they, all of these people had had more than one argument before the court, some of them many. They came in with their large legal team, boxes and boxes of documents, you know, in case they needed to refer to something in the case. On the other side, for the American Humanist Association, was a young attorney, a woman, five years out of law school. It's her first argument. She sat alone at counsel table with a very thin binder of materials. And just sitting in the courtroom, he thought, wow, this is, I mean, how nervous she must have been. I mean, everyone's nervous before the Supreme Court, but for this to be her first big argument. And I think everyone thought she did an incredible job really representing that side well. She did name the Baptist Joint Committee twice during her remarks and referred to our brief, as did all three female justices on the court, all read from our brief at some point in the argument. And I think this just really showed us, again, that this argument needed to be made. It hit a nerve with the justices and the advocates, and that they were trying to find some way to decide this case without having to say that the cross is a secular symbol. I think they know just that that's not something the court should be in the business of doing. And I, and I got the feeling, I don't know what's going to happen with this particular monument, but that they were trying to find a way to maybe you know, grandfather this monument or grandfather of similar war monuments of the same kind, but to say, no, going forward, the cross is a religious symbol and we should not be erecting them on government land. For those that don't watch the court, they may not realize it's it's rare for a brief to be cited. So that is, really speaks to the, the work that the BJC is doing. Thanks. Yeah. And in this case, I mean, I think there were probably about 100 amicus briefs filed. So for ours to really rise to the top of that stack and get mentioned not once but several times in the argument, again, shows that I think our voice was really needed here. Well, we've talked before about the political campaign activity ban, or as it's more often called, the Johnson Amendment. And the BJC led advocacy efforts in 2017 and 2018 to keep this IRS tax provision in place. There is new legislation again this year. And I wonder if you could remind us what this rule is and why you support it. And then do you think anything's going to happen legislatively this term? Yeah. So this is a provision in the tax law that says that all 501c3 nonprofit organizations, you know, these organizations that get the most favored tax status and whose donors get a tax deduction, that one of the things that defines what these organizations are is that they do not participate in or intervene in campaigns for public office. 
you know, here we are, March 2019, and we're already in the middle of the 2020 election. We live in a continual campaign environment. So this rule has really served nonprofits, including houses of worship, well as some of the last places you can go and know that you're not going to hear a campaign ad. It's something that the nonprofit community and the religious community has really been unified in defending this law. But you're right, there have been attempts to change it, and legislation was filed again this Congress that goes by the name of the Free Speech Fairness Act. Looks like legislation that was filed last Congress. You know, I I am hopeful that we'll be able to continue to keep the law intact, but there are continuing to be attempts to repeal the law. So the one of the first bills passed by this new House of Representatives, H.R. 1, kind of their key piece of legislation that had a lot of different non-church state things in it. There was an amendment that was attempted to be added to that bill right before that would have repealed the Johnson Amendment. That amendment was not agreed to, and therefore, you know, we, we don't have to worry about it. But I, I think we'll continue to see attempts like that one to add it into must-pass legislation. It does seem, though, now that we have divided government in Congress again, Democrats do not seem interested in, in this and, in fact, have remained strong and and pushing back against Republican attempts to curtail the Johnson Amendment. So I I don't think we can rest easy. I think we always have to be on guard. But I I do think that that was a good sign that that amendment was ruled out of order in in that H.R. 1. Well, now that we've picked on our Republican friends for their legislative effort to undo the Johnson Amendment, we can be equal opportunity here. I want to note, as you Mm -hmm. said, we we are in a presidential campaign already, earlier than ever. And while... Democrats have been generally not supportive of attempts to undo the ban. They don't necessarily practice that. And so, for instance, I've already seen reports of several of the Democratic presidential hopefuls, Senators Booker and Gillibrand and Harris and Mayor de Blasio as a a maybe candidate, have all already been speaking, campaigning during Sunday worship from the pulpit of churches. I wonder, what would you recommend in light of not just the IRS provision, but also in just thinking about best practices and thinking about this from a church state perspective, what would you recommend to churches when it comes to requests like this from candidates? Because we're probably going to see more and more of this as we're heading into the campaign season next year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think politicians of all parties are interested in getting more votes and more places to be outposts of their campaign. So I am saddened but not surprised that we are already seeing candidates trying to use houses of worship to get votes. And I think it's up to houses of worship to say we're not going to be involved in partisan ways you know, in these campaigns. Now, whether or not someone's going to lose their tax-exempt status, you know, that's that's another question. A church has lost its tax-exempt status over violations of the Johnson Amendment exactly once, and that did not have to do with in-church campaigning. But again, what's legal or permissible is different than what's advisable for the community. And we're really concerned about houses of worship being co-opted by these politicians, as well as losing their prophetic voice, as well as dividing their congregants. And we've always talked about how this is not just for the general election, but for the primaries as well. And we don't want to be divided by the way that we vote. Now, I will say as far as what's permissible, having candidates come visit your congregation if they're not 
you know, actively using it at, for a campaign, but like if they're just giving a speech, that would be permissible. Best practice, if you're going to invite one, invite them all. At that point, I don't know how you have church anymore in this campaign <laughs> with as many candidates who are running. You would just have somebody, you'd have a permanent pulpit supply, right? Maybe some pastors would like that, but I don't think the congregants would. So, I mean, my best advice is say maybe at some point if you wanted to to really have like a candidate forum and have all of them there at once, that would be one option as far as voter education. But probably best practice is just to stay out of the partisan campaigning at all. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, not only for being with us on the program, but for all that you and the rest of the team at the BJC are doing. I mean, this is just stuff that's been happening since January. (laughs) The first three months of the year, there's a lot going on. And we're, I think there are many, many Baptists who are grateful and fortunate that the BJC is there to be a witness for the historic Baptist principles and ideals on all of these various issues. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. I want to note a couple of things that you can follow up on some of these issues that Amanda talked about. Just four days after our conversation, the U.S. Supreme Court actually kind of flip-flopped when it came to the issue of executions and chaplains or religious advisors. There was a Buddhist inmate in Texas that the state of Texas, perhaps following the Supreme Court's ruling on the case in Alabama, Texas had said he could not have his Buddhist religious advisor with him in the chamber. But just four days after Amanda and I spoke, the Supreme Court, without much comment, actually said that that was not right and they halted that execution. Now, it was too late for the Alabama man. He had already been executed without his Amon present. But it does seem like perhaps the Supreme Court justices heard the public outcry that was coming from the BJC and many, many others who care about religious liberty for all. Perhaps they realized that they had made a mistake. It was too late, but they made a change in their ruling for the case in Texas. We talked in this episode about the so-called Bible literacy bills that have been popping up in several states across the country. You can find an episode talking about that topic. That was episode 55. We also talked about the cross case and I have an episode devoted to that that includes clips from the Supreme Court oral arguments. That was episode 58. And we talked there at the end about the political campaign activity ban or the Johnson Amendment. And you can find an episode devoted to explaining that and includes some comments from Amanda way back in episode 32. And don't forget, we had a previous conversation with Amanda five months earlier, episode 36. And last week's episode 69 with Eight Sand Wright Riggins, also from the Sheridan Lectures. Well, I hope that you did enjoy this episode and that you will follow up on some of these important issues. You can learn a lot more about the BJC and some of these critical issues by heading over to bjconline.org. As always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends on Facebook. And head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find this show. If you have comments or feedback about this episode or others, please email me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to donate to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And you can head to wordandway.org, hit the donate button, and whatever you give will support the production of this podcast as well as our monthly magazine and our website. Thanks for listening.